0: Greetings podcast listeners. Once again, I am Dr. James Cole, and I'm here today to present to you my newest topic of healthcare in America: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today's topic will center on how educating our young physicians and surgeons in this country once was, how it's changed, and why I feel that we need to restructure the American medical education process. But before I start, I want to take a few minutes to reflect on this COVID epidemic, which has changed this nation as and has in fact changed the world. Fortunately, Americans rarely encounter large disaster situations, but the unfortunate corollary to that is that very few of us have very much experience, if any experience at all, managing a disaster. Hospitals, doctors, and nurses and healthcare systems rarely practice disaster management operations, and this COVID pandemic has really tested our limits in many regions of our country. I've heard from many providers who are frightened, overworked, and who don't know how this is all going to play out. Most of us are being forced to adapt to new paradigms and how to practice medicine, and many are being asked to fill roles which are well outside of their comfort zone. And whereas some healthcare workers are simply unable to handle the stresses of this new challenge, there are countless others who have stepped up in their wake to volunteer their efforts to help out in any and every way. We are a strong and resilient force, most of whom follow a powerful calling which leads them into the belly of the beast, so to speak, rather than running from it. God willing, this pandemic will soon run its course, but until it does, let's all be mindful of everyone who cares for patients, as they are the modern-day warriors fighting an invisible enemy on an unconventional battlefield. And to any of you fighting this great fight, I say thank you. Know that an entire nation is proud of you, of all of you, of all of those who have stepped up. I too am deeply embedded in this battle, so together, let's all keep fighting, but let's also remain mindful of our need to preserve the fighting force. Now, if you've listened to my previous podcasts, you'll remember me discussing how the role of the primary care physician has changed so much, how doctors who once knew so much and did so much now seem to function more as glamorized triage officers who refer their patients to one specialist after another to manage just about anything other than the very most basic of medical conditions. And in my first podcast, I introduced the topic of how residents these days now receive about one-third fewer of the on-the-job training contact hours, in some cases shortchanging their overall specialty training by nearly 10,000 hours. And whereas this may also sound quite serious, and I assure you that it is, the problem is even more complex. Doctors who receive less training compared to those who trained in the generations prior are, by logical default less educated and less trained, and thus, many might not be able to manage patients' medical conditions as individuals but need various other physicians to help them do so. But these same later-generation doctors are also less conditioned to take responsibility for their patients. They were never trained to be doctors first, and thus, they seem to run away from the hospital or from their patients as quickly as possible. And the once career-oriented 24-7 physician has seemed to have evolved into more of something akin to a factory shift worker. Now, back in the late 1980s, when I was applying to become a doctor, there were about 130 MD and DO medical schools throughout the US and Canada. Interestingly, at that time, it was expected that by the year 1990, that there would be a significant surplus of doctors in the country. And so the thought at that time was to continue limiting the number of physicians trained and don't make any changes in how young doctors are trained but flash forward to 2020. Right now, there are 176 MD&DO schools in the U.S. alone, with another 17 schools in Canada and another handful of schools in the development phase, pushing the total number of schools close to the 200 mark. Yet even with nearly 200 medical schools, we still don't have enough physicians out there to meet our nation's healthcare needs. That 1980s prediction of a significant physician surplus couldn't have been more wrong. In fact, prediction models are now estimating that in the next 10 years, that we will have a physician deficit somewhere in the range of 50 to 100,000. At present, 38% of all physicians are age 55 and older. These physicians represent the generation of doctors who are trained to work long and very hard and to make their career the center of their life. However, these same physicians are starting to reconsider their priorities more and more and are entertaining retirement. When we lose this large chunk of practicing physicians and surgeons, there will be an even greater impact on the overall physician shortage. Because the U.S. population is aging and is surviving longer with more and more disease requiring medical management, more physicians are in need to manage these aging baby boomers. The specialties which predict the greatest future deficits are, not surprisingly, the ones anticipated to manage these aging Americans. Family medicine and internal medicine top the list of anticipated physician needs, largely because these are the physicians who we expect should manage most of a patient's basic medical conditions such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, and arthritis. But surgical specialists will also be in high demand, including urologists, orthopedic surgeons, and general surgeons. As the internal organs start to fail and as the bones become brittle, these specialists will be needed more than ever. But thank God there is something to feel good about, and I'm going to briefly interrupt my discussion, as I always do, to talk about an item in the good column of Healthcare in America. Today's accolades go out to the scientists and to the drug manufacturing companies who come up with new drugs, and in particular, an entire class of new and exciting drugs, truly transformative drugs, which were not even a consideration when I was a medical student, and these are collectively known as the biologic agents. These life changing drugs are truly space aged. Using molecules made in or from living microorganisms, often via the help of various technologies which manipulate or clone DNA sequences to create these very special new medications. The basic sciences used to come up with these new drugs include genetics, microbiology, and by way of biological engineering, drugs were created which reprogrammed the diseased body to heal itself. Biologic agents have been developed to treat various forms of disabling arthritis, cancers, and inflammatory diseases. Like every drug manufacturer, these two all have a generic name, and almost every one of them ends with the two letters AB. That's because most biologic agents use antibodies, abbreviated as AB, created to attack or destroy an element of human disease. These genetically engineered antibodies are often made by introducing a few molecules of diseased human protein into a genetically sterile mouse and then extracting the genetic sequences generated by the mouse to combat the specific disease. The proteins made from the genetic sequences are then purified and incorporated into a pharmacological agent or a drug, which is then ingested or injected into people with specific diseases. These new drugs, albeit insanely expensive, are truly life-changing for many. Adalimumab has treated countless patients with rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. Rituximab has successfully treated patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, both types of blood cancer, if you will. Trastuzumab has shown significant success in treating specific types of breast cancer, and other biologic agents have proven success in managing multiple sclerosis, diabetes mellitus, and various skin disorders. It is quite possible that in the future, most diseases will be successfully managed, and many disease processes will be completely reversed via additional advances in biologic technology. By manipulating human DNA, it is possible that in our future we may be able to rid ourselves of any and all diseases which exist as a result of some sort of genetic mutation. This could potentially foreshadow the eradication of a whole host of inheritable diseases and cancers which have plagued society for as long as man has walked this earth. The potential is incredible, and like advances in computer technology, most people are probably incapable of accurately predicting just how far this may take us. So here's to all of the brilliant people who pioneered, researched, and developed biologic technology and the biologic agents, something to unequivocally place in the good column under healthcare in America. Okay, so now let me get back on topic. So I've established that we need more doctors, and I've established that there will be a significant future need for both primary care physicians as well as surgeons. So what's the problem? We have more medical schools than ever before. This should solve the problem, right? Well, hopefully, but not entirely. Part of our current-day problem, and likely future problem with American healthcare, is that although we have been cranking out more and more physicians, they seem to be capable of managing less and less. Thus, their total numbers are rising, but perhaps where we once needed one doctor to handle the job, we now need two or more. At present, we have about 270 physicians for every 100,000 patients in our country. Some regions have more and some regions have less, but when I was applying to medical school, there were only about 160 physicians for every 100,000 patients, and that was thought at that time that we had too many physicians. So why is it that we are able to significantly increase our physician-to-patient ratios, yet still have this terrible doctor shortage? I feel it's largely due to inadequacies in how doctors are trained, leading to more and more doctors feeling uncomfortable with many, once commonly managed conditions, thus creating a situation where they're just unable to manage more patients, but they're only able to manage less and less. We've already seen a sharp increase in the number of new medical schools in the US, and there have been a plethora of new Caribbean medical schools as well. But before we decide to simply open the floodgates and open up more and more medical schools, let's take a look at the history of medical education. If we can learn from the mistakes of our past, then hopefully we will not be as likely to repeat them. It all starts back in the early 1900s when surgery was still largely limited to limb amputation and when treatments prescribed by reputable doctors were often more harmful than therapeutic. Almost all physicians were MDs, but there were a whole host of other types of doctors all attempting to treat patients and to rid them of their ailments. Medical education at that time was like the wild, wild west where anyone could open up a medical school, charge a fee. And after an unregulated period of study confer any one of a number of different medical degrees to their students who would then have the full authority to practice whatever type of medicine they were trained to provide. Whereas there were some highly reputable schools out there, many, if not most, were suspect in some way, shape, or form. At that time, all of these schools had varying entrance requirements, most of which did not include a college education in any of the sciences. There were no generally acceptable medical standards. Most schools were not formally affiliated with any hospital. Most had no laboratories where anatomic dissection or microscopic learning could take place. And many of these schools were taught by poorly credentialed instructors who may not have even been considered reputable practitioners in their field. Clinical training itself was highly variable. Some schools offered little more than observational training, and others only allowed medical students to participate in the care of limited medical conditions. And most schools did not offer evidence-based teaching, but rather passed along the opinions, notions, and tricks practiced by the instructors. American leaders and people of influence recognized that medical education was a real problem, and in 1904, the American Medical Association founded the Council on Medical Education, whose goal was to figure out how to organize and restructure medical education in North America. Shortly thereafter, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching was commissioned by the American Medical Association to study medical education, and this influential group found an educator by the name of Abraham Flexner, who they hired to personally survey every one of the 155 schools of medicine, traditional and otherwise, and submit his findings to the foundation. Whereas it took Abraham Flexner years to visit each of these schools and institutions, he completed his tour in 1910 and thereafter submitted the report of his rather shocking findings to the group. The now famous Flexner Report of 1910 described the widespread practice of students observing far more than participating, and some schools being such horrific examples of health care that he described all of Chicago's 14 medical schools as a disgrace to the state whose laws permit their existence. He showed particular disdain for the many small medical schools whose existence merely existed to profit the owners and the instructors. He also harshly admonished those schools which had no affiliation with any major teaching hospital. Flexner described many of the local part-time medical instructors as quacks. Flexner's report was shocking, but his recommendations resonated with the Carnegie Foundation and with all of the American Medical Association. As a result of of the Flexner report, 80% of the existing schools of medicine closed or were forced to merge with one of the more reputable institutions. Most of the schools of alternative medicine were shut down, yet most of the osteopathic schools stayed open as their physicians' successes in keeping alive many of the victims of the great influenza pandemic were well-documented. Medical school prerequisites were established. Medical students were to all be educated in scientific-based methods and treatments, and all schools were to engage in some sort of medical research. Medical schools could no longer be freestanding, but were ordered to affiliate with a college or a university so as to enhance the overall quality of the education and to promote high educational standards. In the early 1900s, there were over 150 registered MD and DO schools, as well as countless others including the alternative programs. But shortly after the Flexner Report was issued, the number of MD and DO programs still in operation had dropped to about 60. However, as I mentioned earlier, the number of MD and DO schools has climbed back up and has well surpassed that previous high. There are now 193 medical schools in the U.S. and Canada, nearly all of which are in the U.S., And whereas having rebuilt our system of medical education is most definitely a good thing, I think that we need to be careful to not get ourselves back into that slippery slope where we start opening up medical schools just to crank out doctors rather than to ensure that the physicians, which we do mint, are in fact excellent practitioners. I'm somewhat concerned about our DO schools, which, since I entered osteopathic medical school in 1987, have increased in number by 230%, compared to just 120% increase in our MD schools over that same period of time. That's not a criticism over anyone or anything, but merely my concern. And I encourage all who work in medical education to be mindful of Abraham Flexner's recommendations from over a century ago, as they still have relevance today. So getting back to the heart of the matter, how do I feel that we need to change how we educate our physicians? For starters, we need to expect more from our medical students. Medical school, like most postgraduate schools, should provide students with an overwhelming amount of opportunity to learn, some of which will be required and some optional. And everyone should expect that medical students take advantage of every opportunity possible to learn as much as they can, regardless of whether or not the subject matter interests them. So what do I mean specifically? Well of course, there are the required first and second year didactic courses classroom lectures in subjects such as physiology, microbiology, pharmacology, and so on, which all students are supposed to attend and pass. But whereas many students attend these lectures, not all do. And whereas all successful students pass each class, some pass, but don't really retain much. Some argue that knowing the details of microscopic organisms or the way the body eliminates certain drugs doesn't really matter all that much, but it will one day really help them when choosing an antibiotic based on whatever microorganism was identified in the blood and it will help them alter the dose of medications that they'll one day prescribe to patients whose kidneys or livers are failing. As I tell medical students and residents, everything matters. Everything learned in any phase of one's medical education will in some way one day make them a better doctor. When I ask medical students or first year residents a clinically relevant question, one in which I would expect any medical student to know, And when I hear the wrong answer, I expect that at very least they'll read up on it and relearn what they obviously forgot or misunderstood from the past. But you'd be surprised at how often this doesn't happen. And then there are the clinical rotations. Medical students usually spend about a month at a time working and learning on the various clinical services such as internal medicine, general surgery, pediatrics, obstetrics, emergency medicine, ICU, and so on. Back when I was a student, medical students were an integral part of each service. We performed the histories and physical exams. We drew blood. We dressed and we redressed wounds. We assisted in surgery, usually by holding a retractor. And we even helped deliver babies. Through it all, we learned a lot. We took call. That is, we spent a few nights per month in the hospital, often sleeping, but as often doing something, learning something, as we watched, worked with, and assisted the residents and attending physicians and surgeons. But expectations of our medical students have changed over the years. We don't expect them to show up early. We don't expect them to stay late. We never expect them to work on the weekends. And we never expect them to take call. But I believe that this is not a helpful culture. Medical students can always learn something by talking to and by laying hands on just one more patient. The more anyone sees anything, the better one learns it. If nothing else, by simply being there, medical students will learn what the life of a procure specialty surgeon, obstetrician, intensive care unit doctor, or whatever, is like simply by always being present whenever the mentor physician is working. As I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, residency hour restrictions have significantly curtailed the education of physicians, training, in whatever postdoctoral discipline they've chosen. Now, I'm not saying that I think that my internship or surgical residency years were anything but miserable and grueling, but definitely bordered on torture but my residency colleagues and I definitely learned how to be well-rounded, confident, and independent surgeons. By the time I completed my fifth year of training, where I calculated that I completed approximately 28,800 hours of training following my completion of medical school, I was eager and ready to begin practicing as a surgeon. But those five years spent working an average of 120 hours per week, where I might have had perhaps one day off per month, those were some of the most difficult years of my life. As a military medical officer, I attended parachute infantry school, where they put us through some challenging training, but it was a vacation compared to my surgical residency. I also attended Navy scuba school, where the instructors battled with me underwater, pushing me to the very verge of drowning, but it was still easy compared to my surgical training. For five years, I was physically exhausted, mentally fatigued, and at at times stressed to the limits of my human potential, but after completing it all, I really appreciated all that I'd been through. The entire experience completely eclipsed a decade of my life where I missed out on birthdays, anniversaries, many holidays, and most of my children's milestones. But looking back at it all, it was all necessary. It was all necessary because what I do is serious business and I owe my skill, my success, and my confidence to that surgery residency. But the way interns and residents are now trained changed dramatically in 2003, five years after I completed my residency. Over unfounded concerns that sleep deprivation contributed to interns and residents making mistakes, inadvertently contributing to adverse patient outcomes, and leading to a decline in physical and mental health as well as physician burnout, significant restrictions were imposed on interns and residents limiting the number of hours they could spend working and thus training. It was argued that sleep-deprived residents functioned as if they had a blood alcohol level of 0.1, which, by the way, is legally intoxicated. Following significant pressures from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, mandatory duty hour restrictions were imposed on all postdoctoral residents, and those training in their medical and surgical specialty became significantly limited in how much education they could now experience. Residents became limited to working no more than 80 hours per week. They were required to have one day off per week and were required to have at least eight hours of sleep in between shifts. And whereas this was all designed to increase patient safety and to decrease medical errors committed by residents and to increase quality of life among trainees and to decrease physician burnout, none of it panned out. Everything was studied because the changes were so radical that everyone wanted to know if they had their intended effect. But the studies showed that despite a far less onerous residency workload and mandatory eight-hour breaks ensuring lack of sleep deprivation, nothing, in fact, had improved. Patient outcomes, medical errors, residents' perceived wellness, and physician burnout did not change. But what did change was a resident's experience and a resident's overall education. If residents had previously worked an average of 100 hours per week, the new work hour restrictions decreased their educational experience by about 20%. And if residents previously worked an average of 120 hours per week as I did during my surgical residency. The new restrictions resulted in a 33% drop in surgical opportunity, experience, and training. As I stated previously, I worked about 28,800 hours as a surgical resident, but residents trained post-2003 worked no more than 19,200 hours. Now that's still a lot of hours, but it's almost 10,000 fewer hours compared to surgical residents in years prior. Perhaps It wouldn't be too big of a problem if those graduating from these newly abbreviated residency training programs felt that they were well-trained and confident to begin independent practice in their particular specialty of medicine or surgery, but they do not. In fact, almost three-quarters of graduating surgical residents surveyed in the last month of their training admitted that they do not feel adequately trained or confident enough to practice independently as a surgeon. So what do most of those residents who admit to lacking the training and confidence to practice independently do? More residents than ever before now enter subspecialty fellowship training. They tack on one or two additional years of training after completing their residency, either to gain additional education and experience in a particular area of interest to them, or to gain the basic experience they missed out on as a resident and to limit their area of practice. Whereas this sounds as if we are generating lots more super subspecialists, physicians and surgeons who have exceptional levels of knowledge and training in a highly refined area, the reality is that most subspecialists know plenty in one limited area, but often feel uncomfortable managing and even rendering an opinion on some of the common medical or surgical conditions that they were once expected to know, as this was taught to them during their fourth, fifth, or sixth years of residency training. For example, a medical student who graduated near the very top of her class gets selected to train as a general surgeon at a reputable program in the U.S. Where she attended four years of medical school, she is now in her fifth year of post-medical school residency training learning the discipline of general surgery. This includes learning how to manage disease of the abdominal cavity, the skin and soft tissues, breast disease including cancer, thyroid problems, trauma, critical care, and so on. But during that surgeon's final year of her residency training, she realizes like three quarters of her residency colleagues that she really doesn't feel like she knows all of the abdomen, all of the breast, all of the rest of the body that she's supposed to be responsible for managing. And in just a few short months, she will be graduating. So she decides to apply to all of the breast surgery programs, and she gets accepted to a highly reputable one where she spends an additional year learning all of the nuances of breast disease. Following that sixth year of post-medical school training, a breast surgeon was created, someone who will subsequently evaluate and treat nothing other than diseases of the right or left breast. And whereas this may not seem like a big deal, it actually is. Because although breast cancer and breast disease has become more complex over the years, everything has become more complex. Everything from gallbladder disease to hernia repair to colon cancer has become more complex. Yet the nation still relies on general surgeons to manage nearly all of it. And by taking trained general surgeons out of that pool, there are now fewer and fewer general surgeons to manage our nation's most common surgical problems. But we must remember that the surgeon in the example I gave took herself out of that pool and chose to pursue breast surgery fellowship training. Is it because she really loves the breast that much, that she wants to focus all of her worldly energies on two mounds of mammary tissue, or is it because her training over the five years prior did not prepare her to become a general surgeon? I just illustrated how the problem affects the training and overall pool of surgeons in this country, but how about its effect on those who practice medicine rather than surgery? I'll share with you the story of a different medical student who never had much desire to do surgery, and so internal medicine seemed like the most appropriate post-medical school training pathway to pursue. During his four-year residency, he was trained to recognize, diagnose, and manage a myriad of medical conditions spanning the cardiovascular system, the lungs, digestive tract, skin, blood, and a whole lot more. But realizing halfway through his training that there was simply too much to learn and he wasn't going to get it all done on time, he decided to narrow his focus and what he needed to know and what he would become responsible for managing. So, he applied to a gastroenterology fellowship where he spent the next three years learning to manage disorders of the stomach, intestine, and large intestine. These disorders included irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, constipation, ulcer disease, and infectious problems. He also became trained to perform upper and lower endoscopy and soon learned that he could spend nearly his entire career simply scoping patients. And so, that's where he focused his professional energies. Following completion of his GI fellowship, this new gastroenterologist spent most of his day performing upper and lower endoscopies. All of his training and experience in all of the other areas of internal medicine were for the most part now wasted years, as this particular doctor no longer even performs a history and physical exam and won't even admit or manage his own patients if hospitalized, deferring that time-honored form of privilege to the hospitalist. In the end, America gained a doctor who can pass a scope through the mouth or through the anus, but it lost a doctor who can comprehensively care for an entire patient. And as the example given of the breast surgeon, did this doctor go into gastroenterology to become a specialist or to actually limit his area of responsibility? So let's go back and summarize the problem. Whereas it was predicted that America would have too many doctors, in fact, we need many more. Medical schools have done their part by increasing in number thereby adding many more future physicians to the pool, but our expectations of those schools and the students who attend them have changed. They want more balance between their work and their life. I get it, but that doesn't make better doctors. And then came along the residency work hour restrictions, cutting a substantial portion of a resident's overall learning experience. And in turn, many residents and both medical and surgical disciplines don't feel confident or ready to start doing what they've been trained to do. And so many of them subspecialize, limiting what they do in one small area of the human body, thus taking a significant number of doctors out of the general physician pool. And thus it seems that what we've done is further exacerbate the physician shortage problem by cranking out less trained, less experienced, less confident doctors, many of whom don't enter the general pool of medical practitioners. It seems like one of the most common phrases I hear from many of today's physicians is, quote, I don't feel comfortable managing that. And that's really troubling to me. So what if anything can be done to change all this? First of all, in order to create more doctors, we need to get more medical students enrolled, and we need to ensure that those who are learning to become future doctors are in fact receiving all of the appropriate training and education they need. Thus, I support the creation of so many new medical schools. However, we need to be careful so as not to forget the lessons learned from Abraham Flexner's report hundred years ago. Remember that Flexner recommended that those medical schools which were not affiliated with a college or a university, which didn't have a dedicated lab, and those run by part-time instructors should be closed down. Whereas I'm sure that all schools of higher medical education these days are careful to satisfy all the above requirements, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all done well. For example, a medical school may be affiliated with a university and a lab, but what about an actual hospital where all the medical students have ample access to patients to learn from? It's not uncommon these days for medical students to receive their first and second year classroom and lab training in a brick-and-mortar facility on the campus of the actual medical school. But medical students in years three and four need hospitals with patients to learn from. Whereas all medical schools have some sort of arrangement for students to learn on their third and fourth year clinical rotations, these arrangements may be of a contractual nature only. When I was a medical student, I spent my first and second years in the Peckham Science Hall in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. Peckham Science Hall was the main educational building of the medical college where I dissected a human cadaver in anatomy lab, where I studied human tissue on the slides under a microscope, and where I received two years of lecture on everything from physiology to pharmacology to pathology. There was a full-time cadre of professors, each a PhD specialist in his or her field, who taught each of us our required medical school courses so as to provide us with all the requisite knowledge we needed prior to years three and four of our clinical rotations. Because my medical college was closely affiliated with two hospitals, in fact, the medical school owned these hospitals as I remember it, every single one of my medical school classmates spent a year rotating at one of the hospitals and another year rotating at the other of the two. Each of the medical students was an integral part of those hospitals. A lot was, ex- was expected of us just to keep the place running, and in turn, we learned a lot. Over time, we came to know each of the residents and attending physicians and surgeons, and they came to know each of us. Being an integral part of a hospital system, in my opinion, was a key contributor to my learning as a third and fourth year medical student. But what I described is no longer the situation even where I went to school. My medical college was absorbed into a large university many years ago. The inner city hospital I learned so much from was raised and the other hospital was sold and doesn't accommodate the medical students as it once did. And what I describe is not uncommon. There are many medical students out there right now spending a month in a hospital in one city, scheduled to spend the next month at a different hospital in a different city and planning on spending additional clinical rotations at other facilities. These medical students have no home, so to speak, and thus nobody takes them under their wing unless they're extremely lucky. Thus, it's not uncommon for medical students at the same school to get completely different clinical experiences based on where they might get farmed out to during years three and four. My recommendation would be for each medical school to be absolutely certain that there are sufficient hospitals, teaching physicians, and clinical rotations to give each and every medical student a quality clinical experience in which they can grow as budding doctors. And because medical students will all become practicing doctors in just a handful of years, I feel that it's important that medical students are treated like physicians in training and not coddled like prima donnas. In a very short time, these wannabe physicians will be the ones expected to stay up late at night to manage emergencies while somewhat sleep deprived, hungry, and stressed, and will be expected to work on at least some weekends rather than just Monday through Friday. We need to expect more of our medical students and to expose them to some of the stresses of medicine early on so that they know how to deal with it once they complete all their training. Whereas there's a huge movement these days to talk about work-life balance, I believe that rest and relaxation time should be earned rather than expected. After all, a medical student gets just four years to learn enough to decide what he or she wants to pursue during residency. And in just a handful of years thereafter, every one of them will be unleashed onto the world there will one day be time to relax and have fun. But for at least four years, medical students need to study hard and they need to work hard. I believe that if those who educate medical students expect more from them, then they will be better prepared for all that's expected of them in the future. And for the residents, well, I stated that since implementing the 80-hour workweek restrictions, that some have received as much as 10,000 fewer hours of hands-on training compared to those in years past. And about three quarters of those who complete their residency at least among some specialists, admit that they don't feel adequately prepared. If one of these inadequately prepared residents who missed out on 10,000 hours of educational contact hours compared to in years past, how many years of experience might it take for one of these individuals who works alongside an experienced senior physician get up to speed? If one estimates that a new physician works 60 hours per week for 48 months per year, and if they have accrued 10,000 hours of educational deficit, then it would take this new physician about three and a half years to make up for lost time. And so what should be done about this? I honestly feel that the residency 80-hour workweek restrictions need to be relaxed. After all, there is no law or regulation restricting a physician who has completed a residency from working more than 80 hours a week, and 80-plus-hour work weeks are often expected of physicians from time to time. In addition, I believe that all residencies should be increased by at least a year, If 75% of residents can't get enough training in four or five years, then hopefully a majority of them will get the additional training they need in that additional one year. And finally, when it comes to new doctors subspecializing and in doing so restricting and limiting what they do despite all of their previous years of training, I believe that those involved in higher level medical education and the medical and surgical societies, which the best practitioners in their field belong to, they need to encourage subspecialists to not limit and to not restrict what they do to just a very small, limited area of medicine and surgery. Instead, medicine subspecialists should not ignore the rest of a patient's medical maladies, but instead treat the whole patient using all of their training and skills. And the same goes for surgical subspecialists. A surgeon who specializes in the pancreas, whose patient develops a small incisional hernia at the previous surgical site, does it need to be shuttled off to a different surgeon to manage what he or she has already been trained for years to manage? Subspecialists should all strive to use all of their training to care for their patients, their specialty training as well as their subspecialty training. This will make all physicians and surgeons better, and this will inevitably be a lot more satisfying to their patients. Now that concludes all that I'd hope to cover in today's topic. I will undoubtedly receive some share of criticism for suggesting that we need to move back toward the old, old school training practices of the pre-80-hour workweek era, but I believe that whereas training in, this, in the past was brutal, it did generate doctors who were ready and able to practice medicine and surgery. Perhaps we can compromise and extend residency training, but that too will meet a lot of resistance. Regardless, however, I do believe that we do need to take a hard look at how we educate our physicians and something needs to be done to generate a better end product. I do want to thank you all for listening to today's podcast, and I hope that you'll listen in the future to my other episodes of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I am Dr. James Cole. Have a great day. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.